Hello, everyone. This is Cassie Burns, co-founder of All Your Data. I'm an attorney who's been using AI and machine learning for 10 years. I love data and love talking to people about data, and that's what this podcast is about. Each episode of Cassie and will feature a new guest. Each guest comes from a different background with a different approach and attitude towards technology. We'll talk about their experiences and hopefully we'll learn a thing or two. Thanks for joining. Let's get started with Cassie and Adam Santone. Adam Santone. Thank you so much, Adam, for joining us here today. I really, I really appreciate it. So, Adam. Tell everybody how we know each other, and then tell us a little bit about you. Hi, Cassie. Thanks so much for having me. We know each other because we lived in the same dorm in college, Pines Hall at Henderson State, and we lived down the hall from each other. Yeah, it was a co-ed dorm, really good mix of people, and I think we all had a good time staying there. I have a distinct memory of moving into the dorm, and our freshman year, we actually lived across the hall from each other. And you and your roommate were installing a doorbell. And I'm not talking a a ring or a nest or anything fancy. It just is an old school boom bong like type of doorbell. And I don't think it actually ended up working for the long run. But that was my introduction to Adam Santone. Yeah, I do remember we had some fun times there. It was a very old dorm scheduled for demolition. And so we had a little bit of leeway. I tried to install a few. Uh, bells and whistles, so to speak. Well, actually, literally. So um, <laughs> yeah, we had we had a good time. So Adam, tell tell the group, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and, and why I might be wanting to talk to you about AI. Well, my background is a bit diverse in terms of the, uh, the domains I've been interested in. I started in life science. I studied plant biology, and eventually plant molecular biology with a focus on touch-sensitive genes. So I got some good exposure to data in that program. And later I got into technology and interactive computer graphics, which led to me kind of an interest in, in how information can be presented graphically. And I did a lot of education and outreach programs along the way and have more recently been involved in instructional design with technical course matter, including artificial intelligence, data science, and and related topics. So can you talk a little bit about what instructional design is? Because I'll be honest, I don't really think I heard that phrase until I heard you talking about it when we, we were catching up a year or two ago. Sure. Uh, well, personally speaking, instructional design, this is just my definition of it, but it's it's trying to take uh, some subject matter that that is being learned and helping those people that know that information really well get that into a digestible format that works well for learners. It is structuring that information so it can be taken up by novices or people that are interested in learning it. And there is like a formal approach you can take to doing that. Just because you know something really well doesn't mean you're good at teaching it. And so in a way, I see instructional designers a bit like shepherds or guides that can work with experts and help transcribe that information as needed to help uh, an audience. Now, we, we're using this podcast to talk about emerging technologies, including AI. 
we're both Gen Xers. We've been around for a while. Hmm. I know you started in life sciences and you've gone on and gotten ultimately your PhD in technology. And I, I think, mm-hmm. you know, multiple master's degrees. So can you tell me when you first started getting exposed to AI and what that was like? Well, I would say the the first time that I really started to look at it was when I was doing my dissertation. My dissertation was looking at the spatial abilities of video game players. And as part of that, I needed to do some clustering algorithms. And so under the broad umbrella of, of AI, we have some machine learning methods that I was able to employ. At that time, I needed to learn about them and, and figure out what was useful. So I did some consulting with some statistics department representatives, and they helped guide me a bit on that. But ultimately, I was able to use clustering algorithms as part of my research. And then later, I began working with different groups to develop courses in these topics and learned more about it along the way. Can you tell us about some of those courses that you worked on? Sure. So one project that I'm really proud of is some work that I did with MIT, where I worked primarily as sort of a curriculum developer and instructor talking about statistics and related methods like data visualization for an audience of adult learners in Uruguay. And so one thing about that country is they're interested in in upskilling in data science in a big way. And so there was a strong interest for them to train and and enter into the data science economy and, and help their country out in that way. So they had approached MIT to help out. And so while I was up there working, I did a project with the open learning group and we were able to put together some curriculum and instruction for for that group of learners. And so that was really a great experience. I got to go visit them in person and do quite a bit of online education where I would make the content and then deliver it to those learners regularly for a period of time. Now, I know that AI is heavy in the news right now. It is such a trending topic, and and really what's driving that is the generative AI. So we're talking ChatGPT, MidJourney, things like that. But the AI you and I have been using in the past, I, I at least know I, you know, it's supervised, unsupervised type machine learning, you know, and, and it sounds like you were doing something maybe a little bit similar with the clustering How have you seen AI change in the past, say, 10 years or so that you've been working with it? Well, I I would say a lot of it is the same as it has been. A lot of the machine learning techniques are not not really new, but there's been more sophistication, I suppose, around them and and some of the methods. But the thing that's really caught the the public's attention are are these generative methods that the public suddenly has access to. And where a lot of these extremely sophisticated techniques were relegated to research groups and very, very restricted competitions to see who could make the algorithm a little bit better each year, suddenly these tools are available online for the, for the masses. And, and so as a casual user, you, you could just hop in and sign into an account and, and use them. So that's really the biggest change I think that's happened. And go back a few years, it would not be common for you to hear about artificial intelligence algorithms, let alone tools being used. And I think that's really something that's interesting that's happened. For me, it's a little bit like 
when the the internet first became a public utility that that could be accessed not like a public utility like government run but just just an accessible tool for everyone so in the late 90s we all had access to the internet for the first time and we started to see shops up here we started to see libraries have portals that you could sign into to find books or whatever it is and i think we're seeing something very similar with ai right now we have these sophisticated tools which are getting better on a, a very rapid pace um, but but we're seeing them being made available so you know chat gpt is working its way into just about every facet of life uh, i've used it as part of my instructional design work I know others are using it in all kinds of ways too. I love the reference to the the onboarding or the ramping up of the internet. It makes me think of our days at Pines Hall because that's really when we were there. And I remember we had a computer hall. We had a computer room with internet access. And I remember us crowding around it, watching episodes of South Park online. And that was such a mm -hmm. like cool, fun thing. But um, and, and I completely agree with you. I, I see it the same way. It's kind of the big shiny new thing. And it, it will start, I think, to become a more common thing that we'll have a better understanding of. But I, I would love to hear the type of recommendations you would give to people trying ChatGPT for the first time. They can go to OpenAI, log in, get an account, and start inputting and playing around, having not really used AI for the past, you know, so years like you have or I have, what sort of advice would you give someone new to using something like ChatGPT? Well, I want to start out by saying that the the way that we're, we're starting to see these tools reminds me of how we each taught each other when the internet first started to become a really popular thing. And what we're doing is we're all sort of poking at this technology to see what it can do. What are the limitations? What are the boundaries? What are the useful, most useful methods? What are the least useful things? You know, where does it break down? And so when we started to have the ability to generate our own websites, was that tool sophisticated enough to realize our vision? Was it able to do what we wanted it to do? And if we found something interesting that could be done, we might share that through word of mouth or, or creating experiences for others. And I think we're seeing the same thing with, with these tools. We don't all yet have a full understanding of what it can do. Some people don't realize it can write computer code that will work. I was talking to someone today and, and they're using it to fine tune computer code that they wrote. So they combine their code with text requests how can you make this a little bit more refined? Can you change this parameter and make it more like this? And they'll get back something that's useful to them. So we're starting to see more and more novice technologists, I guess, have access to these very sophisticated tools. And it's interesting from an education perspective to see how these uh, essentially infants are, are using these things. They're playing with the, the shiny ball and seeing what it does. They don't know yet what it does. So they're poking it, playing with it, rolling it, and, and kind of learning through experience. So what I would recommend for people trying it for the first time, it's a text-based input. What you might want to do is have it compose something for you, like a letter, 
but you can also inform the the tone or or the the perspective of the author. So you might want to play with that a little bit and say, write me a letter from the perspective of a turtle about what it's like to live in the forest, something along those lines, and come up with something fun and creative. I think that's a good way to start. There's so much you can do with it, though, really. There tends to be a lot of one extreme or the other. And I mean, I was talking to my mom and she said, oh, the news just said that AI is going to destroy the world. And I, you know, of course, rolled my eyes. So there's overhype on one hand, I think an oversimplification of how the tool can be used and how wonderful it is. And then on the other hand, the fear mongering, it's going to take our jobs. It's, you know, Terminator, Skynet coming. What's your response to people when you hear that? It's an old story. Technology has always been out to get us, and it has always been an extremely powerful tool to help us advance. It's a double-edged sword, and there's some truth in both sides of that. I think there there's this word augmentation that comes to mind. In my role as an instructional designer, one of the first things that I thought of and my colleagues thought of is, how can we use this? How can we use this to save time? Or another thought we had is, wow, it would make it really easy to cheat if you can get a get a computer to write your essay. And those are both true. I think we're going to see that very commonly, but it also is an opportunity to reflect on how you teach. Do you want to examine you know, what it is you're asking students to do. I know some teachers have taken this to heart and, and they've asked students to go ahead and use the tools and then write about where they failed and where they succeeded. So it's more of an analytical critique of the technology. And I think that's useful as well. Um, the next generations will have access to things we cannot even imagine. And we'll see that story play out again and again and again throughout history. As someone who works in instructional design, do you have a thought or a vision of how this could be us at the cusp of major sea change of how education is approached, how curriculum is approached, as opposed to how it's been done the past 50, 100 years? I don't have an opinion on that yet. I'm, I'm sort of waiting to see on that one. Education tends to move slowly changes anyway. So I would like to see, you know, some, some help from technology and education that's on, you know, that's where I generally stand is, is looking at how technology can, can assist the the process of education. But I think, you know, some of the first news articles that came out when, when chat GPT started to gain popularity were knee jerk reactions. We need to turn that off, cancel that somehow make sure students can't use it. And that's just not realistic. I, I can't speak to the the legal side of things so much, but I think you're going to see similar things on, on the legal side, knee-jerk reactions. But there's not yet a good understanding in terms of, say, writing laws about the role of AI in society. I mean, that's not here quite yet. And it'll take us a while to catch up with that. The technology will move faster than the legal system, and it will move faster than the education system. So what we're seeing right now is that gap, and we're not yet sure what everyone's going to do in that gap. 
I know that from some of your prior experience, based off of what you've told me about, you've used virtual reality or tested out virtual reality or VR in an educational setting. And you knew this before the talk of metaverse was really popular. Now that there's been that a year or two where that that was kind of a very trending topic and it's cooled down. But I would also say picked back up with the announcement of the Apple Vision Pro. Do you see virtual reality technology as another way to augment or propel educational programming further? Absolutely. I, I'm speaking more in the very long term, but I think what we'll eventually see is the synthesis of the, the physical world where you know we experience life every day with synthetic worlds. And, and those are yet to be defined. We haven't yet in my in my experience, seeing like a really good killer app that drives the adoption of this in in every aspect of life, but on the long term side of things, I think we'll see it. I think we'll see more um, synthetic experiences merged with physical experiences, and I think we're only going to see technology on the hardware and software side improve. From the learning side of things. There's a lot of opportunity uh, from medical training to flight simulation and things like that. And a lot of that's been around already, but I think the the sophistication is going to improve and approach the realism of the physical world. So as we get closer and closer to that, it will be, I believe, more firmly integrated into learning programs. And eventually, you know, those things provide provide a lot of um, a lot of advantages in terms of something like patient safety, you know, for training programs for doctors. You don't have to risk as much when you're using a, a simulation, for example. So I think we'll start to see more and more of that integration over time. I was talking to my last guest about how VR or even I, I've heard talk of holograms maybe being the, maybe more trending than VR, but just imagining what the potential of VR or hologram-based evidence in court demonstrative. Right now, there's there may be video that's up on a screen and you can see a simulation of an event, but I could see the um, how, how much more persuasive or how much more compelling it would be to actually be in a simulated room in a VR experience. I know anytime I've been in a VR team's chat room or, or a team's room, I'm much more engaged than I am on a zoom call. So, you know, sure. while I'm not going to be someone to wear an Oculus or, or a vision pro or any heavy headset for a long period of time, when I do wear it for that, you know, hour long, it's, it's very, again, it's a very engaging experience. Sure. I think you'll see that if you want to talk about a legal setting where you're reviewing what happened in order to persuade a jury or, or anyone else. Uh, I think it's very much an educational experience. And in another, maybe less critical side of things, we can look at those engaging experiences for something like science education or or history education, where you can live in the moment. Maybe you can see famous sites around the world. These are common ideas. We've seen this with computer software before. Um like where in the world is Carmen Sandiego and you learn about all these right. cool places. 
but but doing that in an immersive way gives you a new experience. One thing that I really enjoyed was this I tried this immersive experience to learn about Anne Frank's home and her experiences there and to see the space and and be in there to experience it from that perspective was enlightening because you don't get that from reading about it. So pairing maybe more traditional educational sources with these immersive experiences can provide new insight. And I think it works well for K-12 or college education, but it would work equally well for legal scenarios like you described. Right. I could even see museums that are in virtual reality that may be more compelling than in person. I could see a Banksy-inspired museum where seeing his art on the streets where most likely it originally came from, I think, is has got more of an impact than seeing it in a more traditional museum setting. So right. um, I think there are a lot of opportunities there. Yeah, I think the key word there is context. So you know, what was it like when that event happened? You may hear about something, but to be there and see it from the perspective of the original viewer can really uh, shed some light on what that was like. Adam, you and I both love data. We've talked about it. We've talked about it here. We've talked about it in the past. I also know we both love fountain pens. And uh, that's that's a, an interest I got from my husband. He got me interested in it. But uh, I know that you did a little bit of a data analysis on fountain pen inks. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I did. So I had some free time and I was interested in doing um, sort of just a, a project for my portfolio. And so I found that the uh, Goulet fountain pen site had many inks for sale. And I wrote to them and asked if I could scrape their website and grab the data. And they said, yes. So I did. And um, yeah, I essentially wrote a web scraper to pull down a lot of information about the inks that they had on their website, including links and different metrics that they had posted for comparison. And then I wrote a, um, a series of analyses using that data and then created a little web page with it and then put it all together. The final web page has a lot of interesting visualizations and comparisons and ranked tables. So you could find maybe something that you're looking for. And every one of the inks listed there is also linked to their page. I don't know if they still work. It was a while ago. At the time, the the tables of information would also allow you to see, uh, for example, really, really interesting inks and whatever metric. And then you could go right to the page and purchase that if you like. Yeah, because people take fountain pen ink attributes very, very seriously. I know whenever Damon looked at it, he was very very amazed by what you put together. And I'll definitely be sure in the the podcast notes to include a link to that study in case anybody else, sure. we, in case we have any other fountain pen nerds out there that, that want to look into it or have I'm sure there's at least one or two more. At least, at least. So I've actually been to a fountain pen convention, if you can believe it. So I can believe it. <laughs> well, so on the topic of data. Let's talk about data literacy. Uh, okay. We live in an economy, let's be honest, of data, regardless of what profession, what industry you're in, there's a data component to it. So I'd love to hear your thoughts from an educator's perspective about and, and a scientist's perspective about data literacy. 
Well, I agree. We're in a position to consume data all the time. We also, as users of the internet, you know, we, uh, we transmit data uh, in, in all kinds of ways. And uh, a lot of that is used by companies to sell us things. And that's a major part of how the web works. We, we provide clicks and views and likes and shares, and all of that is used to describe us. And so we are effectively a source of data um, for, for a lot of uh, commercial operations. So I think data literacy is important because we need to understand that and, and understand how our personal data are being used and understand how we can use data from other sources. I have some anecdotal stories about data literacy. And uh, to start, I would like to say I, I did teacher professional development in a former job. And I worked a lot with teachers to help improve what they, what they know and how they teach. And one time I was working with science teachers and I asked them just uh, really simply, how many of you science teachers, these are all high school teachers, if I recall, how many of you believe that scientists use data? And of course, they all said that that's true. They all believe that. And I asked them, how many, how many of you do programming? And none of them raised their hand. How many of you use code in any way? None of them raised their hand. How many of you look at simple statistics, none of them raise their hand. And so there's this gap where scientists are users of data and, and analytical methods, but none of that is really talked about in the, the high school science classroom. And I asked them, how many of you go outside to collect data with your students? And it, it, it was just really disappointing to me that it's not a common thing and if I recall, very, very few, if any, of the teachers said that they do that. And so for me, science is a process. And the teachers clearly recognize the importance of data and data literacy for science careers. So what I wanted to do with them was expose them to that. And so what we did for a project in that training was to come up with a good research question. So they divided into teams. They came up with a simple research question based on what they had access to, which was nature right outside the building. And there are a lot of good questions you can ask. You don't have to have a complex scenario. You can, you can do science in your backyard. You can do science in your driveway. And that's a, a key message that we wanted to convey. But we asked them to come up with research questions. And then throughout the week that we were there, they collected information every morning and maybe every afternoon, depending on their, their needs. And throughout the week, we learned a little bit about programming and how they could enter and analyze their data to address their research question. And at the end of it, we have this question of how do you know? And, you know, sometimes the numbers are different, but that's not necessarily enough. So what we were getting at was this idea of significance in a, in a statistical context. So they had their data, they had their numbers, they wrote their code, they did their analysis, they put together a brief presentation about what their methods were, and then they were able to get up and say, conclusively, this is what we found, and this is why we believe that. And that really drives home the message of, of science as a process. And I feel like when they were going back into their classrooms, they could take a little bit of that with them 
and encourage their students to do active learning and and not just looking through books for definitions which to be honest a lot of a lot of high school biology is uh and that is a necessary component i'm not knocking that but but what i would like to see is more active incorporation of data literacy into science classrooms and with that comes the technical skills around programming and so with that I, you know, I think they're in a much better position to to inform students and prepare them for what they will eventually face if they go that way in terms of a career. I have similar feelings about the legal profession, and I, I know that this is something, again, you and I have talked about. I spend a lot of time with data, more so than maybe a lot of my peers in the broader legal world, and I'm a firm believer that the more you start to learn and understand how the underlying data comes into play, it lets you be more agile in responding to the other side or you know, validating your position. Coming to this table, this discussion from your scientific brain, your your instructional design brain, at a very high level, what are some recommended data literacy, again, recommendations you could make for maybe legal professionals or someone you know in the business setting? Well, I think my recommendation broadly for anything related to AI, machine learning, data science is to try it yourself. And I know that the the barrier can seem intimidating if you're not familiar with these things, but really it's it's not that bad. It can be just thinking a little bit about data and why it might be helpful to you, writing that down um, and, and then looking at what you can do with it. I think just finding some way to try it yourself is key. Uh, As we wind this down, Adam, I'd love to hear you tell us some of your favorite tools that you like to use as someone proficient in technology and data literacy, especially those that may be easy to transfer or easy for someone like myself or in education or in a business setting to maybe pick up and learn themselves. Sure. What I've been able to do when I've been training educators and and learners as young as uh, middle school even, uh, what I tend to avoid are any products that are marketed specifically to educators. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but I'm generally not a fan of anything that is specific to that market. So what I've been able to do in my training is use industry standard programming tools and languages so that anyone that learns with them can be prepared for any career that uses that. I'm happy to say and proud to say that I've, I've taught middle schoolers and high schoolers to use standard programming tools, and then hopefully they can carry that through in college and, and beyond. What I've been working with for a while now is the R programming language and the RStudio IDE, which is the, the interface for programming that. And more recently, I've been using a publishing system called Quarto, which uses a combination of markdown and programming language in the same document to create HTML pages. So that's been really nice. It's something good for reproducible reports where you can have some text and you can insert code that might, for example, pull numbers from a database and then produce a plot. So this is something you could run every week or whatever it is and then get a new report. But a lot of it stays the same. While your code is the same, the numbers in the database change and you get a, a new report with new information. 
but you can also use it for blogs and websites. I used it for my portfolio site and, and it just has a lot of good general purpose. But inside of that, uh, it uses, for example, R or even Python and some other languages as well. So you can use these tools and use it to teach data science, which is what I've been doing, but you can also make your own documents as well. So for me, R and Python are the two biggest data science languages, I think still. And Quarto is a really interesting publishing system that I've been uh, tinkering around with more recently. And can you just very briefly describe what R and Python are, or what they're ideally used for? Sure. Python is a more general programming language. It's a fairly high level. Uh, it's it's sort of readable. Um, and it's used for a lot of things. I've, I've used it for some data science tasks, which it's good at, but uh, it's also uh, good for me because I can do document manipulation. I've, I've had reasons to use it previously with some automation tasks, like um, say pulling out all of the speaker notes from a PowerPoint and assembling that into a Word document. So I can have 30 PowerPoint files, but then kind of take all the words out of the bottom of each slide and then squish it into a Word doc so I can read it more easily. Doing that by hand, opening up each file, that takes forever. So by creating a script in Python and running that on all those PowerPoints, I can save myself a lot of time. And then later down the road, if I need to use it again, I can just run the script again. So Python can do that type of stuff really well. For both of these languages, one of the really powerful aspects of them is the ability to incorporate libraries or specialized um, instructions that are packaged and you can import the library and then suddenly you have a lot of new abilities. So for example, in that last example, you might import a library that allows you to work with Word docs or PowerPoints and suddenly you can have some new commands available for working with those. And similarly with R, there are... Um, a lot of libraries you can use. Now, the thing that's a little different is that R is specifically aimed at data science and statistics type problems. So it's an analytical kind of a language anyway. So a lot of the tools that are built in are with that in mind. And a lot of the libraries that are available are also with that in mind. Some libraries might be uh, mainly to give you access to a data set that was published along with a journal article, something like that. Others are more for specialized types of visualizations like maps or, or things like that. But it's a really useful language if you do anything with data manipulation and analysis. They're both capable of doing machine learning and artificial intelligence problems, but R tends to be more of a data science type language than Python specifically. Although Python has lots of libraries that give it that ability. But they're both really useful and, uh, you know, it's, it's the same old thing. You use the right tool for the job. So depending on what the needs are, you may want to use one or the other. But I will say, uh, again, with Quarto, which is something I'm playing around with, you can actually combine them both in the same document. Uh, so if you have the need to use both languages side by side, you can do that. We love options, don't we, Adam? We do. So <laughs> as we close this down, I would love to hear the emerging tech concept or, or possible concept that you're most excited about. So where are things going in the future? I, I think the word convergence comes to mind. 
we have artificial intelligence capturing the, the hearts and minds of, of users everywhere. We have virtual reality on the horizon as it has been for decades. I'm still waiting on that killer app uh, from the VR world, but I think with the with the rivers running together, we have generative AI, which has a lot of promise in terms of creating really interesting experiences. I think that has massive implications for video games and and those types of experiences. I think the convergence of generative AI and virtual reality is going to be really interesting. And that has, again, um, some strong implications for educational experiences. I think that'll be really neat to see. But we can't ignore the text side of things, too. I know I tend to focus on visual media, but... but um, the way that chat GPT and, and large language models are affecting how we write and how we compose code and, and test things like that. Uh, I think that's really interesting as well. So I could see, for example, a video game that uses generative AI to produce um, procedurally rendered environments on the fly with, with strong enough processing power, but also use uh, language models to generate the uh, you know the dialogue from non-player characters and and others in the game as well. So that'll be really interesting. So I would say pay attention to the video game industry. I think we'll see a lot of movement there earlier than some other cases. Well, I appreciate it so much, Adam. Uh, thank you so much for joining me as a podcast guest. Really enjoyed it, and everyone. Be sure and check out Adam's website. I know I'll, I'll include a link in the podcast notes and definitely check out the Fountain Pen Inc. Uh, analysis. It's absolutely fascinating. And I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Cassie and this episode, Adam Santone. Thank you all very much. <laughs>